Hello and welcome to Decoding Cancer from the Irish Cancer Society, the series that aims to answer your cancer questions. In the information age, it can often be confusing and overwhelming for people seeking advice on a topic as important as cancer, which covers such a broad range of areas from things like how to prevent it and what you should do, what you should eat, what you should drink, where, you name it, to cancer patients who are trying to access reliable information to help them make huge and sometimes life-defining decisions on treatment that is right for them. And that's why I'm particularly interested in this topic this week around which cancer advice is trustworthy. We thought this series might provide a good opportunity to assist people in wading through this sea of often apparently conflicting advice and claims and aid you in identifying reliable information that can set you up on the right path for whatever stage in life that you are at or a loved one as they go through a a cancer experience. Thankfully, I have two eminently qualified and knowledgeable guests to help me tease out uh, what can be at times a very tricky subject. Uh, And I'm delighted to be joined today by Professor Declan Devan, who was recently awarded our research grant from uh, for a project on how best to overcome misinformation and disinformation in cancer. Uh, And Jennifer Fian. Jennifer is CEO of the Irish Nutrition and Dietetic Institute, and she herself is currently living with breast cancer. It's really brilliant to have you both here. Thanks for joining me. You're welcome, Rob. Thanks very much, Rob. Appreciate the invitation. Great. And uh, we'll we'll, we'll kick into the topic and certainly one that's very topical, I think, uh, at the minute with everything that's going on with COVID and with other aspects of health as well. And um, maybe a kick off uh, with with Jennifer just to to, uh, get uh, some insight Jennifer, you've worked now for many years with cancer professionals and more recently you've had to grapple firsthand with some of the issues um, through your own diagnosis. So I might start, if you don't mind, just how big an issue is misinformation around cancer or other healthcare topics at the moment? Um, as, as you see it? Well, it's it's been an issue for a long time. I mean, I noticed Ronan Glynn, um, he did a, an interview a couple of weeks ago and he spoke about the avalanche of misinformation that they're having to deal with in the context of COVID. And, you know, it's I felt like saying, well, welcome to our world <laughs> because as long as I've worked in cancer services, which I've worked in since 1999, um, and then more recently within the nutrition sector, we've had to deal with misinformation of various different types. And I guess the motivation behind misinformation is really important because on the one hand, you have people who are trying to help you, your family, your relatives, your friends. They just want to to give you that extra 1% that will help you get through this. And then I suppose the less positive side of that is people who have a profit motive, who are trying to give information that they perceive, again, to be accurate, but they're trying to effectively make a living out of um, giving advice to, to cancer patients. And it's really difficult sometimes to tell the difference between the two between what is evidence-based and what is anecdotal. And even you're just so keen as a patient to to do the best you can for yourself and as a family member to do the best you can for the person you love. So it is, it's a minefield um, and it does appear to be getting worse. I, that's, that's something I'd have to agree with you. And I, I'm not sure we fully adapted to the pace of information technology and that and I suppose misinformation is as old as the hills if you think about some of the original 
when inoculations and vaccinations were developed, there were always people who were giving misinformation around that and you get a second head or whatever it might be. And to me, trust is actually one of those things because we know in, in our walks, various walks of life, we will encounter social circumstances where we pick up stuff and we tend to be able to rank that. And and maybe modern life has kind of changed that a little bit and we haven't all kind of caught up and adapted um, to that. Um, do you think there could, there could be something in that, in that, 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 you know, the pace of technology, how we know who to trust, the erosion of, of trust in, in certain institutions and the things that we have seen maybe has, has made for a more fertile ground in that perhaps? I, I think so. I think the erosion in the wor- in the trust of the expert um, has really, it has made a big difference. The availability of information on the internet as well. And it is very hard to navigate that because if it looks like it and feels like it and sounds like it, you know, a lot of the language that's used is this sort of quasi-clinical language. And people talk about, well, I did my research without really understanding that the parameters and the really strong structures that exist around research. So the medicine that is given to me as a cancer patient has had all kinds of different iterations around it over the years versus the N versus one thing, you know, which is where I say, well, it worked for me. But but isn't there something, isn't there something in there though as well about what we might like to believe, and, and I suppose a, a, a life-changing diagnosis of a serious health condition like cancer or heart issue or whatever makes us very vulnerable. And, and, and sometimes very people with very robust evidence-based ways of assessing fact from fiction or whatever can be very become very vulnerable because of maybe what we want to believe uh, and the certainty that that's um, in, in media or whatever may portray about cancer or about what you should or shouldn't be eating or whatever versus science and medicine which sometimes doesn't give the answer we want to hear which may not say that there is a cure may not say that you know things aren't going to get difficult maybe there's there's something in that vulnerability as a patient as well is there there is and you see the thing is you want to believe that you are going to be the exception to the rule of course you do you know and there is an old colleague of mine used to refer to the tyranny of hopeless hope, you know, where you, you, there's a warlike language that is used in cancer as well. You know, you win or you lose, you're a warrior or a wimp. And, you know, so you, you feel that you have to do whatever you can. And that includes diet. Um, it includes alternative therapies. And people don't necessarily understand the difference between an alternative therapy, which doesn't necessarily have much evidence behind it, and the actual treatment that they're getting from their oncologist or their medical team, which does have a huge amount of evidence behind it. So Declan, I should probably bring you in there now, because I think Jennifer and I could, could sort all of these problems out ourselves there. There's just so so much and there's so much to unpack there from, from what Jennifer said. I, I think... Most people, if not everybody, actually wants the right advice. They, they actually want to get the best possible outcome uh, and that. But we know that misinformed approaches to cancer care can sometimes lead to um, tragic outcomes, even fatal outcomes, potentially from otherwise curable um, cancers. So that, that's a really stark thought. So, so tell us a bit about 
what you're trying to address through this uh, informed health choices study uh, and, and how it relates to some of these you know, potential bad outcomes and some of the other challenges that Jennifer mentioned there. Okay, um, thanks, Rob. Thanks, Jennifer. I was, I was taken by Jennifer's comments uh, around that, um, and it can be reflecting our own experiences with our, our son um, uh, with the diagnosis of cancer being that you know life changing as we as we know, but also highly emotional. That fear and that need for hope, and I think that does mean that um, certain groups of people, I think, and families are particularly more vulnerable to um, uh, misleading or misinformation um, because of that uh, seeking different uh, therapies, something that will make a difference, that will uh, uh, provide a a, a treatment or provide a a cure. So I think that um, for some groups, I think, including uh, people with cancer, I think there is an amplification of of this uh, misinformation. Um, One of the things that we're uh, working with the Irish Cancer Society on is um, trying perhaps in three things is to try and uh, well, first of all acknowledging that misinformation as you mentioned Rob in the introduction is a, a, a problem it's a major problem um, it has uh, caused harm it has led to uh, a death it has led to premature suffering um, it is a major problem I think that's been brought further into the limelight um, certainly around COVID and the misinformation around COVID which I think most of the public now can speak to having been exposed to misinformation. And we're trying to do is uh, maybe three things is um, to to, uh, work with people uh, uh, affected by cancer and this applies beyond just a cancer diagnosis uh, to to recognise when a claim about the effects of treatment has an untrustworthy basis. Um, Try to identify why that uh, claim is not trustworthy and then what do you do about that? What choice do you make then once you have that information? And we're basing our programme on an initiative called the Informed Health Choice Programme, which we've been working at, interesting Rob, as you know, we've been working for quite a number of years with primary school children on a programme to introduce critical thinking around health claims, that is misinformation, into uh, primary schools. And um, so we've been working with eight to 10 year old children for a number of years to work with those children to help them identify a health claim about a particular treatment, determine it's whether it's trustworthy or not, and then to take a decision based on that thinking about that claim that they've heard. And if we go back to our own childhood, you can see that we've all grown up with lots of, you know, old wives' tales or misinformation uh, for many years. Um, uh, so so, so the butter, doesn't, Irish, butter doesn't cure burns uh, and, and stuff like uh, that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and and the doc leaves the nettle stings. And uh, there's lots of other things throughout. I, I certainly remember I grew up on a farm and uh, things like, you know, simple things to do with agriculture. Like you might have birds um, will abandon the chicks if you touch the nest. All of those things yeah. into. No, you're not. You're not going to say to me though that flat seven up doesn't cure everything. So, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. You know, or that camels store water in their humps. You know, um, but there and there are these lots of humorous examples. But as you mentioned earlier on, um, it's when those examples push into something that potentially has severe health consequence. But the principles are actually the same. The interesting thing about the old wives' tales for me and those urban legends um, is that um, they're, they 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 really stick. 
Um, they really, really stick throughout our childhood into adult life. Um, they, they do have residual power and that's because they have remained unchallenged for many, many years. Um, and I think that is the same with misinformation around health. When they remain unchallenged and the length of time they remain unchallenged, we actually find that uh, can be a, a, a real uh, challenge. So example, another example I use in health is um, that sugar, sugar itself causes hyperactivity in children. And there's no evidence to gain to support that. There's lots of evidence that Jennifer know much more about around other additives, which are associated with things that have lots of sugar can cause that. So there's all of these nuances that we need to kind of work to tease out a little bit more. I, I get the sense that, that Jennifer has loads to uh, contribute there. So I might pass back to Jennifer. I know both yourself and Declan have seen the damage that, that can be done if someone, you know, even with the best intentions in the world is is misled. Maybe, you know, I, I think of an example where um, maybe somebody has given a family member a book and, you know, when somebody gets um, terrible or difficult news. You, the human thing is to want to do something and you maybe go on to Amazon or something like that and, and get them a book. And I, I've been quite shocked and I, I've spoken to some of the people behind the scenes and these things have been quite shocked that, you know, the first 19 of the top 20 books on the Amazon thing are complete and utter nonsense when it comes to uh, to, to, to cancer. So have you witnessed this yourself and, and what kind of risks do you think people well, um, maybe I'm have from, from that? I'm laughing when Declan talks about the, um, you know, the old wives tales. I remember uh, an oncologist I worked with one time, patient came out of his office and I was kind of hanging around outside the office. I needed to speak to him and he was purple. And um, I said, well, what's wrong with you? And he said, well, I've just had a patient tell me that the rub of the relic she got from the seventh son of a seventh son is what cured her cancer. And he said, I've been looking after her for nearly 20 years now. And um, so he was just, I remember saying to him, well, you know, did you explain things to her clearly? Because if you, it's the mark of a gifted clinician and communicator that they can explain something that's really complicated in simple terms. And sometimes that can be an issue. But in terms of the, the various different resources, somebody um, said to me not so long ago, I was just come out of hospital and I'd been being fed through a tube in my tummy when I was in hospital. And they told me, um, Brussels sprouts, that is one of, they're one of the best things you can do to beat cancer. And I was thinking, right, okay, well, if I threw a few sprouts into the mix now on top of what I've been going through over the last few weeks, that would probably have finished me off. But their motivation in telling me that was to be helpful. And they had read it. And we have seen things like when I started with INDI, it was vegan diets cure cancer. It was all about the vegan diet. And then it became the juice diet. That was the thing. You had to have your wheat grass. You had to have green juices as much as you possibly could. And then it swung the other way. You needed to have like paleo diets or ketogenic diets. Sugar feeds cancer. That was another one. So that kind of led to this diet's and, being and, developed. And just for clarity, in case anybody misunderstands, none of those are cures or treatments for cancer. So we're just, just making Absolutely up. Absolutely not. Yeah, yeah. And as Derlin said, the longer misinformation is unchallenged, it starts to develop legs. Because someone says, I, I think I may, re I read something about that. 
And we need to come out quickly and strongly and say, that's not true. I, I think also um, the way it's put across, Jennifer, like so, so uh, I think I, you see some really smart ways that I, I see some headlines. So instead of actually making a claim around a particular, let's say nutrient, for example, and its ability to uh, uh, treat cancer, it might ask the question. So it might put up a question like, um, can X nutrient cure cancer? But the message people walk away from just reading that question as a headline kind of subconsciously suggests that actually it possibly can even though there might be zero evidence base behind it. And mm. the best advice I got um, back in 2016 when I was diagnosed the first time was my surgeon said to me, we are going away now to design a treatment that is tailored to the individual biology of your tumour. And I took that with me and I said, right. So it, it really helped me to see through the noise and or um, see through the noise, but, you know, hear what needed to be done and understand that what it was with me was not necessarily going to be the same with everybody else. And you see that in the waiting rooms as well, you know, um, where people are passing on information to each other to be helpful. Um, And then you feel, I remember one particular one, which was pineapple, that if you took pineapple before and after your chemo, that it would help your chemo work better. And I have sat there in waiting rooms over the years and gone, no, no. But it's very hard to not, to to challenge that information because people are looking at it going, oh, okay, well, sure, it wouldn't do me any harm. The thing is, it might do you harm. It may well interact with the medication that your your surgeon or your oncologist has prescribed for you. So talk to your doctor. Don't trick around at home. Do, do you think, and, and I'm very interested in, in what, um, uh, what Declan was saying there about the approach in children. And I suppose I think, I think children are, are such an untapped asset in terms of setting up um, a healthy lifestyle and, and all of that. And, and we need to really encourage and emphasize critical thinking among children rather than rote learning of, of, of topics and so on. But do you, do you think that in some cases information and misinformation almost becomes somewhat like an identifier that we tend to get into a situation of, you know, associations between certain lifestyle choices and certain approaches to health and, and sometimes actually we can start to be dogmatic and we can start blaming and, and maybe that some of the challenges at the minute are around the language and the way we interact with each other, as opposed to going back to those principles like you are, Declan, of saying, well, actually, the problem is more fundamental. It's around how we process information, not around our, our belief systems that we ultimately end up with. That's a really good point, Rob. And, and like that, that does concern me in terms of that if somebody's challenging a status quo or a particular position, they're automatically labelled as being a, on the periphery or a, a, a heretic, um, somebody who isn't adequately informed. And that might not be the case, because the one thing we do know also in health is that evidence is changing all of the time. And um, it, it, rather than actually, um, uh, uh, I personally think that, um, you know, we need to put much more effort into supporting critical thinking and health literacy, um, rather than actually dictating what people should do. And in that way, people then have the tools to 
keep themselves as up to date as possible with the emerging evidence and the changes that they might need to assess to take a decision. Um, one of the things that it, 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 in our work for the Irish Cancer Society, some of the background materials we were looking at is that about 90% of people who are affected by the diagnosis of cancer search for health information online. And about 50% of millennials do so the same day they receive a cancer diagnosis. So the, 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 the access to, mis, to, to information, much of which is unreliable, is so easy that I think the focus back onto working with people together, so we develop the tools together that better help people navigate um, and identify what information should be trusted and what information shouldn't be trusted is something I think we need to be given more attention to, to be honest. And, 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 and if I just, it's not, not just the cancer area. I mean, we've seen a tsunami of uh, hate spill onto the streets across the world where particular ethnic groups, for example, have been targeted due to misinformation and promulgation of hate. Uh, which is quite strong to say, but it's the truth, based on misinformation. Um, so I think, you know, having the tools to assess the reliability of information um, it, it goes much beyond health. Indeed, um, if we start thinking about climate, you know, the effects of uh, on climate, again, the consequences of um, uh, uh, not having acted when information was available, which had been uh, touted as being unreliable um, has meant that we're now in a serious situation globally in terms of climate change. So I, I think I can hear Jennifer actually nodding um, so vociferously <laughs> in, in, in the background there. Um, that, and I, I, I think we all kind of agree, unfortunately, we are seeing it and, and you know, people like physically threatening, being violent and, and that over over concepts. And do you think as, as well, though, Jennifer, and something you touched on was around the communication, do you think as well as training people at a young age in, in how to distinguish uh, in general information, not just, you know, focus on, on the rote learning around cancer, but actually how to pick fact from fiction. But there's also something in that communications piece of healthcare professionals and even scientists Firstly, communicating in a manner that is clearer. So in other words, I don't go on with a, a paper where I've stuck um, an extract of nettle in on some cell lines and, and imply that I've got the next best thing that's going to cure all cancer. But also that, you know, the communications with healthcare professionals understand that gulf that exists, the, the, the language that's different when you're a specialist versus somebody who's really had the rug pulled from underneath them. Is there something in that, do you think, as well? I agree, because, I mean, when someone gets a cancer diagnosis, it's very hard to hear anything above the roar in your ears. And, you know, as Declan said, you do go on in your own time to the internet and you have a look and you Google your diagnosis and you it's very hard to disseminate between or discriminate really between what is sound evidence-based information and what isn't. But I think that practitioners in general, from doctors to dietitians to nurses, they need to be able to explain to patients what is happening in simple language and to also be able to help them discriminate between what is good information and what information is not sound. So critical thinking, I suppose, versus magical thinking. 
So it, that's a really great way for us to, I suppose, come to to a conclusion. But in the last couple of minutes, and we've only a couple of minutes kind of left, really appreciate your own kind of top tips, you know, the things that you do or that you advise in your family members um, and are important to you as to how you pick out more generally fact from fiction, how you how you give yourself the best chance of a good outcome. De- Declan, I mean, you're obviously doing this academically. So what are, mm. what are your kind of top tips, your, your principles that are emerging from your research? Um, I think it's to um, be aware of headlines um, that quite often, if it's too good to be true, it's you probably should be aware of it. Um, I think that um, reading things like uh, a, a study shows, um, we have some examples, you know, of study shows that drinking wine does this and another study shows quite the opposite effect. Um, I think it's reading beyond the headlines, probably my top tip. So beware of things that say things like a study shows or another example a colleague of mine uses is associated with where he says that eating ice cream is associated with an increased incidence of skin cancer. Uh, and of course, it might be due to the eating ice creams associated with warmer climates. Uh, mm-hmm. um, Summer uh, so holidays and that, too much sun. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Nothing to do with the ice cream at all. Um, so I think um, it's reading beyond those headlines and to be aware of the uh, nuances of those headlines. Uh, it would be my top tip. Je- Jennifer, your your top tip now that you've got millions of people, we've millions of listeners now, so you're going to change <laughs> the world. What's your, what's your top tip for it? Either trying to make money out of it. When you look at an article um, or you look at um, a service, are they, do you need to pay for it? And are they regulated? Um, That is a really important area. So if you get information from the Irish Cancer Society, they're a regulated charity, they're a registered charity, and there are sanctions against them if they don't give you the right information. If you get information from a doctor or a dietitian, they are regulated. And if they don't give you the right information, sanctions can be levied against them. They'd be two things I would look at. And, you know, it, it's not a perfect way of looking at things, but it does help to weed out some things. Okay, so um, I'd love to keep talking on, on these topics again. Another uh, topic that we could probably go to three or four hours, but um, we we do need to wrap up there. I want to express my sincere appreciation uh, to Jennifer uh, and Declan. It's been a really great uh, conversation. I think something that we're going to have to come back to again and again if we're to give ourselves the best chance of, of good um, health outcomes. So very grateful to you both uh, and thanks for joining me. Uh, If any of our listeners would like to find out more uh, about and support the vital research funded by the Irish Cancer Society, you can visit www.cancer.ie and also Jennifer uh, and Declan uh, have given a pitch there. We have a lot of other information, resources and supports. If you uh, are impacted by cancer, you can go there. And remember to keep an eye out on our social media channels for new podcast episodes. Let us know your thoughts, what you're interested in using the hashtag Decoding Cancer. Anyone who would like help or advice on any of the topics we've touched on today can contact our dedicated Irish Cancer Society support line on free phone 1-800-200-700 or email supportline at irishcancer.ie and supportline is all one word uh, and they'll get to speak to one of our specialist cancer nurses 
we're nearing the end of our second series and it's been a brilliant way to connect with our supporters on these different cancer topics and the topics that matter to them. So we thought we'd go out with a bang with our first ever live podcast webinar event um, next week, which will focus on immunotherapy and the benefits of this evolving field and what they're offering for those affected by cancer. Uh, the podcast will go out live on Monday. So if you'd like to join us, please do keep an eye on our social media channels and on cancer.ie for information on how you can sign up. And if you can't join us on the day, we'll be releasing the episode as a podcast in the usual manner next Tuesday, where you can catch it, catch it on your platform of choice. So we look forward to talking to you again and uh, look after yourselves. And thanks for tuning in. Mm-hmm.